Well, I've got my dad on the front row up here this morning. And that's going to be good for all of us. But there was one thing that he used to say all the time when he was pastoring in the churches that I grew up in. And for those of you who don't know, I am a preacher's kid. And everything they say about preacher's kids is absolutely true, just so you know. But he used to say, if that don't light your fire, your wood's wet. And I would just tell you, if singing about the marvelous love of our Savior for us does not light your fire, then your wood's wet. And you need to consider about drying that stuff out and letting the Lord get in there with His Holy Spirit and begin to warm your hearts again with the fact that He is a good Father who loves us with an infinite love. We have been very blessed to be able to sing of that love this morning and to be able to rejoice in God's love for us through singing and through worshiping in song. And now it's time for us to open our Bibles and to worship Him through studying His Word. So if you brought your Bibles with you this morning, and I certainly hope that you did, would you please take them out and turn once again with us to the Gospel of Mark, the 6th chapter. Mark chapter 6. If you've been with us on this journey since January, you know that we have been studying this gospel all the way through it, and we're going to continue studying, and we're going to be here still for a while yet. But we've also alerted ourselves to the fact that when we are studying this scripture, we need to be aware that primarily there are three questions that underlie the text. Some weeks that some text that we look at, one of these questions might be a little more emphasized than another, but nevertheless, three questions that are always in the background of the text when Mark is writing it, and that is this. Number one, who is Jesus? And then when we answer that question, we learn that he is the Messiah. And then secondly, then we come to the second question, and that is, what kind of Messiah is Jesus? That's an important question that we need to learn. And then the third question that underlines the text all the way through is this, what difference does that make? So who is Jesus? What kind of Messiah is Jesus? And what difference does it make? Now, I will tell you that if you chew on those questions and if you really ask the text those questions, it'll help you, particularly when you come across certain passages like we're going to come across this morning. The passage that we're going to look at this morning from Mark chapter 6, verses 14 through 29, when we first look at it, doesn't really seem to fit. It doesn't seem to fit the context. As a matter of fact, we just finished last week by looking at the fact that Jesus sent out, he commissioned his disciples to be apostles who would go out in his power and in his authority to preach a message of repentance to all the towns in which they went and that when they got there they would deliver people from demons and they would also uh, perform great miracles and healing people and and so verses 12 and 13 of Mark chapter 6 says that they actually went out and began to do those exact things they began to preach and they began to heal and they began to deliver And then if you look then again in verse 30 then, you'll find that after they had gone out, Mark tells us that they came back to Jesus and they reported to him all the things that they had seen and that they had had done. And so really, if you just look at it that way, you don't really need verses 14 through 29 to continue that part of the story. And yet, we have this here. Mark begins to tell us what happened to John the Baptist. And he tells it to us right in the middle of him telling the story of the disciples being commissioned to go out. And so sometimes when you come across passages like that, you kind of scratch your head and go, what do I do with this? And exactly what does it mean? Well, here's where this passage comes to be important. Ask the questions. Who is Jesus? What kind of Messiah is Jesus? And what difference does it make? And when we begin to chew on those questions and ask that of the text, suddenly the text begins to come alive and it begins to reveal things to us that we might not normally have come across to begin with. That's what I hope to be able to do for you this morning as we read this text, is to be able to query it from our understanding of who Jesus is and to walk away from this 
with some application from our lives. So let's begin reading there in verse 14 of Mark chapter 6 and hear what the Word of God says. Now King Herod heard of him, that is Jesus, for his name had become well known. And he said, John the Baptist is risen from the dead, and therefore these powers are at work in him. Others said, it is Elijah. And others said, it is the prophet or like one of the prophets. But when Herod heard, he says, this is John, whom I beheaded. He has been raised from the dead. For Herod himself had sent and laid hold of John and bound him in prison for the sake of Herodias, his brother Philip's wife, for he had married her. Because John had said to Herod, it is not lawful for you to have married your brother's wife. Therefore Herodias held it against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not. For Herod feared John, knowing that he was a just and holy man, and he protected him. And when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. Then an opportune day came when Herod, on his birthday, gave a feast for his nobles and the high officers and the chief men of Galilee. And when Herodias' daughter herself came in and danced and pleased Herod and those who sat with him, the king said to the girl, Ask me whatever you want, and I will give it to you. He also swore to her, Whatever you ask, I will give you up to half my kingdom. So she went out and said to her mother, What shall I ask? And she said, The head of John the Baptist. Immediately she came in with haste to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And the king was exceedingly sorry. Yet, because of the oaths and because of those who sat with him, he did not want to refuse her. Immediately, the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought, and, when he, and he went and beheaded him in prison, brought his head on a platter, and gave it to the girl, and the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples, that is John's disciples, heard of it, they came and took away his corpse and laid it in a tomb. Brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God. It's for the people of God. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your goodness and for your mercy. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for caring for us. Thank you for taking care of us the way you do. Lord Jesus, I just pray that as we enter into this time of worship, that you would just continue to absorb us into your Word. Help us to understand it. Help us to apply it to our lives so that when we leave this place, we will leave as those who have encountered you. We're grateful for the opportunity that you have given us your holy word to study. We pray that it would change us from the inside out and conform us in the image of your son Jesus. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So as I mentioned in my introduction, I want us to begin today examining this text by asking the question, who is Jesus? And I actually believe that's a very natural question that should bubble to our minds as we study this text, particularly because of the way that Mark begins it there in verses 14 and 15. He actually sort of abruptly introduces us to this man, King Herod. And we're going to learn a little bit more about him in a minute, but he just comes and, and, and Mark begins talking about him with really no, no prior notification whatsoever. We also learn of others who are there with King Herod who had seen Jesus or had heard of the things that Jesus had done and they collectively begin to wonder this, who is this man? Who is Jesus who is doing all of these wonderful and mighty and great things? 
and, and what they come to, the, come to the conclusion is that some say, well, he's Elijah, the Old Testament prophet who's come back to life. Others are not so sure that he's Elijah, but they're sure that he's a prophet of some kind. The way that he acts and the things that he does are very indicative of things that prophets would do. But Herod, Herod is convinced that Jesus is John the Baptist who has been raised from the dead. Now, incidentally, when Herod begins to speak of John the Baptist here, this is the first time that we've heard John the Baptist's name brought back up to us since the very first chapter of Mark's gospel. Now, you'll remember when we, when we were there that, that, Jesus, that the Bible tells us that John came on the scene and he became proclaiming a message of, of repentance and baptism for the, for the remission of sins. But what we learn here is that John the Baptist, by this point in Jesus' life, had been arrested and he had been beheaded. We're going to come back to all of the, the surrounding details concerning that and the implications for that in a moment. But for now, what we need to focus on is the fact that the mighty works and the mighty words of Jesus had caused people to question who Jesus was. And what's equally obvious from their assessments is that they did not truly understand or perceive who he was. I find it interesting that that you find here in Mark, in Mark 6 the exact same explanation for who Jesus is that you find a couple of chapters later in Mark chapter 8. In Mark 8, if you'll recall, Jesus got all of his disciples together and he looked at him and he says, Who do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said to him in Mark 8, verse 27 and following, they said, Well, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others, one of the prophets. What's interesting is that's exactly what is what is said of him here in Mark chapter 6. The word on the street concerning Jesus was that he was some kind of great prophet. Either Elijah come back from the dead or some other prophet who had come. But if you would also remember too, though, that Jesus then turns around and says, well, let's forget about what everybody else thinks. I want to know what you think. What do you, my disciples, think? And Peter, in typical Peter fashion, stepped up and says, well, you are the Christ. Matthew even concludes and says, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so true, so accurate was that, that, that what we find there is that Jesus says, blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. So based upon that blessing that Jesus gives to Peter, based upon what Peter had confessed with him being the Christ, what we come to understand is that that's who Jesus is. You see, contrary to what everybody else thought, that he was Elijah raised from the dead, that he was John the Baptist raised from the dead, or some other prophet, what the Scriptures reveal to us is that he was more than that. He was more than just a prophet. He's more than just a good man who taught a good lesson. He's more than just a miracle worker and a healer of diseases. In fact, what I want you to note is the first point on your outline this morning. When we question this text, who is Jesus, then what we come away is the first answer that I want you to note this morning. And it's this, Jesus is the Christ. He's the Messiah. He is the Son of God. That's the first thing that we learn today, that despite what Herod thought, despite what the others thought about Jesus, what the Scriptures reveal is that He is the, the Christ. He is the Messiah. And so having come to that conclusion, then we need to then begin to ask a question, okay, so if He is the Christ, if He is the Messiah, if He is the Son of God, then the follow-up question is this, what kind of Messiah is He? What kind of Christ is this man 
Jesus? Well, I believe our text here in Mark 6 helps us answer that question as well. To get at the heart of what kind of Messiah Jesus is, we really need to, to know a little bit more about his disciples. We need to know a little bit more about those who followed him and who professed him to be the Messiah. If you remember last week, we noted earlier, and, and as we noted earlier, Mark had just called his disciples together. He just sent them out two by two in his power and in his authority to go preach a message of repentance. And if that message of repentance was accompanied by them, their ability to do great miracles and to have authority over demons. But what's important is to note the environment into which they were sent. Last week, we also noted that according to Matthew's gospel, particularly verse 10 and six, chapter 10, verse 16, Jesus said, Behold, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. It's not very comforting to consider that if you're the one being sent out. Down in verse 22, he also tells this. He says, look, you will be hated for, by all for my namesake. they are going to be sheep sent out among wolves, and they're going to be hated by all. Man, sign me up for that. That's awesome. What Jesus was doing, though, was being clear. His disciples would ultimately face hostility. They would ultimately face persecution because they were his disciples. In other words... To obediently follow Jesus would ultimately put them in danger. And that danger is made clear by what Mark tells us happened to John the Baptist at the hands of Herod. As we read verse 16, John the Baptist had been beheaded. Why? Well, let's remind ourselves of what, what we know about John the Baptist. As I mentioned earlier, Mark tells us that he was one, he was like that. He fulfilled the role of being in the line of all the Old Testament prophets. Mark tells us that he was one who was, was a voice of one crying in the wilderness. He came and he, he testified to the fact that Jesus Christ was the Messiah. In fact, he was the first human to testify to that fact. If you'll recall, even when, when before John the Baptist was born and he was, he was being carried by his mother Elizabeth, when, when Mary, who was carrying Jesus in her womb, showed up at Elizabeth's house, it says there in Luke's gospel that, that John the Baptist began to leap in her stomach, testifying to the fact that there was something special about the child that Mary was carrying. Later in John chapter 1, verse 29, we hear the verbal testimony of John the Baptist, who when he saw Jesus said this, that behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This was who John the Baptist was. He was one who came on the scene as a voice crying in the wilderness, testifying to who Jesus was. And he did that further by calling people to repentance, calling them to repent of their sins and to prepare their hearts for the coming Messiah. As a matter of fact, Mark chapter 1, verse 4 says that he came baptizing in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the remission of sin. And Mark goes on to tell us that John's message was wildly popular. People came from all over Israel to hear him. But not everyone was excited about what John the Baptist preached. In fact, according to Mark chapter 6, we see that some got quite agitated and angry with him because of his message. That was particularly true for Herodias. Herodias was the wife of Herod, who Mark refers to as King Herod. Now, let me say this. While, while Herod really enjoyed and liked being called king, he wasn't really a king. He actually was only a tetrarch. He only was able to rule over one-fourth of Israel. 
His dad was Herod the Great. That was the king who was on the throne when Jesus was born. But Herod the Great had died, and Rome had decided to divide his kingdom up among his sons. And Herod Antipas was the Herod that is referred to here in Mark 6. And he ruled over the area of Galilee and Perea. Herod Antipas was a wicked man. He had married the daughter of King Aretas IV, but then he had divorced her so that he could pursue and actually marry Herodias, who, incidentally, was the wife of his brother, Philip. Now, not only was Herodias Herod Antipas's sister-in-law, she was also his niece. Because according to historians, she was the daughter of another one of his brothers, one of his half-brothers named Aristobulus. Hope you're getting all this. Let me sum it up for you. Not only was Herod an adulterer who had taken his brother's wife, but he was also in an incestuous marriage as well. It was into that environment that John the Baptist came on the scene. John the Baptist confronted him with his sin. In fact, according to verse 18, John the Baptist had confronted Herod by telling him, it is not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Now, we might think immediately that Herod would be just incensed and angry at the fact that, that John the Baptist would come and confront him with his sin. But Mark tells us in verse 20 that Herod actually feared John. Why? Because he knew that he was a just and a holy man. In fact, what we learn is that Herodias was the one who actually hated John the Baptist the most. Verse 19 says that she held John's message of repentance against him and wanted to kill him, but she could not. She could not because she, she had a husband, Herod, who was protecting him. It's interesting. But as we read, Herodias' day finally came, though. It was Herod's birthday party. Herod and all of his invited guests, his nobles, his high officers chief men of Galilee, they were all celebrating and, and partying together. And it was at that moment that Herodias sends out her own daughter, a daughter that she had had with Philip, Antipas's half-brother. And when her daughter came out, she danced for all these men. I don't think it's appropriate for me to recreate the scene for you. I'm pretty sure that most of you can probably understand what took place there. No doubt the wine flowed freely. No doubt there were many inebriated men who were being entertained by a beautiful young girl who danced for their pleasure. So delighted was Herod at what he saw and how well this girl had entertained his friends that he said to her, ask me whatever you want and I will give it to you. He said, whatever you ask me, I will give you up to half my kingdom. Now, the girl didn't really know what to ask for. As a matter of fact, she goes and she asks her mama, Herodias. He said, what do you think I should ask for? Should I ask for a new chariot? Should, should I ask for a pearl necklace or maybe a new dress? No, 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 no. You go ask for John the Baptist's head to be given to you on a platter. What wickedness. What absolute hatred and vengeance. John the Baptist had spent his life proclaiming the coming of the Messiah. He had done so by testifying that Jesus was that Messiah. Furthermore, he had done so by calling sinners to repentance. 
And what we read is that his faithfulness to the mission to which he had been called ultimately led to his martyrdom. And therefore, as we attempt to answer this question, what kind of Messiah is Jesus? When we analyze this passage, when we analyze what we come away with is that this realization that, uh, that the martyrdom of John the Baptist actually illustrates the ultimate cost of discipleship. This is the same cost to which Jesus alluded when he sent his disciples out as sheep among wolves, as those who would be hated by all for his namesake. It's the same thing that he goes on to teach in Mark chapter 8 when he says anyone who desires to save his life will lose it. But if you lose your life for my sake, you'll find it. It's the same message that continues on into our day. I'm always reminded of the words of Jim Elliott that he had penned in his own diary before he had hit the shores of Ecuador and was martyred for his faith. Jim Elliott wrote these words. He said, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. So friend, when we query this text, and we ask what kind of Messiah is Jesus, what we come away with is the second point that I want you to see on your outline this morning. Second point is this. Jesus is the kind of Messiah for whom it is worth losing your life. Jesus is the kind of Messiah for whom it is worth losing your life. I believe that's why Mark sandwiches this story of John the Baptist right here in the middle of him sending his disciples out and then them coming back and reporting all that they had done. I believe Mark puts it there so that he is painting a picture for us of what true discipleship actually looks like. It's a picture of self-denial. It's a picture of, of self-sacrifice. So as we've looked at this text, we've asked who is Jesus and we've determined that Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. We've also asked what kind of Messiah is Jesus and we've come to the conclusion that Jesus is the kind of Messiah for whom it's worth losing your life. Now based upon this passage, let's ask the final question. What difference does it make? What difference does all of that make? Well, we begin by asking what difference does it make with Herod? We noted that he had heard about Jesus' mighty works and deeds and what he had come away was is thinking, well, Jesus is John the Baptist who's been raised from the dead. This is John the Baptist whom I beheaded. It's interesting, Kent Hughes notes that this is graphic language. The I is, is emphatic here in the Greek. And so basically it, it, Herod is saying this, I am the one. It is me who beheaded John the Baptist. Even though he may have not have been the one who, who slung the sword, he was the one who gave the command. What Hughes goes on to note is that this was an awakening of Herod's suppressed conscience. You know, so often our natural response is to put away from our conscience remembrances all the things that we do that are evil. But suddenly, I don't know about you, suddenly, out of nowhere, it's little things, little reminders, little things that can come up in our lives that can remind us of those things that we did back when. Evidently, there were details of Jesus' ministry that did that for Herod. Certain things that he heard about what Jesus did reminded him of things that John the Baptist had taught and done, and then that just served to remind him of what he had done to John the Baptist in having him beheaded. You see, based on what Mark tells us, Herod was quite intrigued with John the Baptist. Herod feared John, according to verse 20, knowing that he was a just and holy man and that he protected him. And then he says when he heard him, he did many things. That's an interesting way to describe that. The ESV says that, that, that he, when he was greatly perplexed, and yet he heard him gladly. 
Here's my interpretation of that. When John the Baptist came and talked to Herod, he would get Herod so worked up and so agitated that he'd pace the floor and he'd walk back and forth and he'd wring his hands and he'd chew his fingernails and he'd run his fingers all over his head and he couldn't get his hands around everything that John the Baptist was telling him. It greatly upset him and perplexed him and he did many things. And yet, the Bible says, he heard him gladly. He wanted him to come. He was excited every time John the Baptist came and preached. And that's just interesting to me. Why would John the Baptist love being put in that situation where he was under such duress by the very message of John the Baptist? What exactly did he enjoy about it? Well, perhaps, perhaps it was that he thought listening to John the Baptist would in some way atone for his condition. Maybe he, listening to him caused Herod to temporarily at least aspire to live a better life. One writer put it this way, perhaps listening to John made Herod make some attempts at self-reformation, do a good deed, pardon somebody, play with his kids, or give to a beggar. We don't know. What I do know is this. My guess is, is that there are many who experience the same thing today. They come to church. They sing songs. They listen to the sermon. They're intrigued by the things that are spoken. Perhaps they come so that they can assuage the guilt that they feel because they know that they're living lives that are embroiled in sin. They come knowing that the words of their mouths and the meditations of their hearts are not going to be found acceptable in the sight of God, but what they hope is that they can come and get a good Jesus fix on Sunday. They can get enough of this Jesus in them that maybe they'll feel a little bit guilty and that that'll make them spur them on to do a little bit better things, do a little more good things this week, try to treat their family a little bit better, treat their co-workers a little bit better. Maybe God won't be so hard on them next time. Unfortunately, however, many go home the same route that Herod did. You see, while he was intrigued by John the Baptist and while his conscience was stirred, Herod never repented of his sins. R.C. Sproul has written that the single greatest restraint on evil that God has placed in the world is conscience. According to Romans chapter 2, verses 12 through 16, the law of God is written on our hearts so that our consciences will bear witness to God's standards. And then as a result, our thoughts will therefore either accuse us or it will then excuse us from those things. And because what we see here of John the Baptist preaching, we know that Herod's conscience accused him. But he never turned away from the very things that Herod confronted him with. While Herod's conscience was stirred, he nevertheless continued in the same wickedness and in the same sin that had constantly and consistently characterized his life. And friend, I want you to know that is a real danger. When a person refuses to repent... When a person remains persistent in their transgressions and in their wickedness, then the conscience can become distorted. It can become seared. It can actually turn in upon itself. And a person can then begin to engage in things that they would not otherwise normally have ever engaged in. The example of Herod is just simply this. The very prophet that he had sought to protect from his own wife, he later sent an executioner to behead him and to bring his head back to his wife. You see, he became trapped by his own words and by his own fear of losing face before his friends. As you might imagine, Herod's story ends 
quite tragically. In fact, the last that we hear of him occurs in Luke chapter 23, verses 8 through 11. By this point in Luke's gospel, Jesus has been arrested and he's going before Pontius Pilate. Pontius Pilate hears that Jesus is from Galilee. He knows that Herod the Tetrarch is ruler over that area, so he sends him to Herod. And Herod is very excited to meet Jesus because believe it or not, this is the first time that Herod Antipas and Jesus have ever met, though they both heard of one another all their lives. But Luke records this very chilling account of their meeting. Listen to it in Luke 23, verse 8 and following. Now when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, for he had desired for a long time to see him, because he had heard many things about him, and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. Then he questioned him. He plied him with many words. But Jesus answered him nothing. And the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him. And then when Herod and his men of war treated Jesus with contempt and mocked him, they arrayed him in a gorgeous robe and they sent him back to Pilate. I want you to notice that Jesus stood face to face with Herod. And Herod saw with his own eyes the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. The one who had the power and the authority to save him from his sins. And yet all Herod wanted out of Jesus was to perform some tricks for him. He just hoped to see Jesus do some of those miracles that he was known for. Herod was more interested in Jesus being his entertainer than he was in Jesus being his savior. Kent Hughes puts it this way, Herod stood face to face with the Christ, the ab, uh, one who is of absolute righteousness and absolute goodness, and he saw nothing in him. And what I want you to know is in light of that self-centered and hard-hearted approach, Jesus saw nothing in Herod either. When Herod plied him and asked him all those questions, Jesus refused to answer him a word. And Jesus' silence is really a tragic commentary on Herod's life. And it marks a tragic end of what we hear about Herod in the New Testament. We don't hear anything more out of him after this. John MacArthur writes that Herod Antipas stands like Judas as a monumentally tragic figure in history. He not only was locked in a dungeon and ultimately executed the most honored prophet of God, the greatest man who had ever lived according to Jesus, but also, and even more importantly, Herod had an audience with the king of kings and he mocked him and he turned him away. And as a result... Herod lost his soul. Friend, that is what the Bible tells us is true. Not only of Herod, but for everyone. The message of Scripture is that God gives grace to those who humble themselves before Him. He extends mercy to those who acknowledge their sinfulness and who recognize that Jesus is their only hope for salvation. However, those who refuse to do so, those, those who refuse to repent of their sins, and trust in Christ, well, just as we see here with Herod, they will die in their trespasses and sins, and they will face the holy wrath of God. Herod, though he really wasn't one, he liked being called a king. The irony is that when he was face to face with the only true king of kings, he didn't recognize him as such. And that made all the difference. And that leads me then to answer that final question that we've been asking of our text. What difference does it make that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, the Christ who's come, 
What difference does it make that he's the one who's only, the only one who is worth serving and losing our life for? Well, the third point on your outline this morning is this. The difference between eternal life and eternal death hangs upon one's willingness to repent of sin and to trust in Christ. So having examined this text this morning and asked those questions, pondered their answers, let me give you my sermon in a sentence today. My sermon in a sentence is this. Because of who he is, his infinite worth and the difference he makes. And you and I must humble ourselves before Jesus, repent of our sins, and trust in him to save us. Let me ask you this morning, do you recognize Jesus for who he truly is? Do you know him as your Savior and Lord, or, or is he just someone that intrigues you? I want you to understand this morning, it is not enough. It is not enough to just be inspired by Jesus. It's not enough to just be amazed by him. Rather, the Bible is very clear. We must humble ourselves before him, repent of our sins, trust in him that he will save us. If you've never done that this morning, I beg of you to learn from the terrible and the tragic example of Herod the Tetrarch. If Jesus is your Lord and Savior, then let me ask you this. Are you willing to give up everything for him? Is he worth more to you than anything else? Is he worth more to you than even your own life? The road to discipleship is often marked by pain and trouble. The Bible is clear about that. It is a road of self-denial and a road of self-sacrifice. But I would remind you of what Jim Elliott wrote. He's no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. Does that characterize your life? If not, then I beg you this morning to learn from the example of the self-sacrificing, self-denying example of John the Baptist. Because, brothers and sisters, this is the Word of God. And it's for the people of God. Let's pray together today.